I'd like to read a very um, profound statement that's made in our New Testament, in our Bibles. There are, um, every, every word of God is, is needed, and yet uh, there are some verses in the Bible that are able to encapsulate such wonderful and profound truths, and I want to read one of those tonight. It's found in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to read verses 20 and 21. I'd like to speak just on verse 21 tonight, but 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to take a look at a verse that's found here. This is the Apostle Paul, uh, uh, one of the uh, prolific writers of the New Testament. He writes quite a number of books uh, in the New Testament of our Bible, uh, starting with, with Romans. Uh, he writes this book, 1 Corinthians, or the book before 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, uh, Galatians, Ephesians. So he's one of the great writers in the New Testament. We're going to read his words here about the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5. And it's just the end of the chapter there. We'll read verse 20. It says this. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you, that's me or the speakers tonight, towards you. In Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. That's our, our message tonight, is for you to be reconciled to God. And then he goes on to describe it here in verse 21. He says, for he... That's God hath made him, that's Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. That's Jesus Christ who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We'll read that verse one more time. For he, that's God, hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in in him. The message tonight is one that deals with being reconciled. We use that word a lot. Um, sometimes if you have a fight or you have a, a disruption, whether it takes place in a marriage, in a family, within a business, um, people are looking to be reconciled. And, and, and I've been on the, the offend or, or the pe people who I've, I've done the offending. And so usually I go and I make reconciliation with people. But we have a message here of a God who has done everything in order to make reconciliation, this bringing back together of you and God possible tonight. And so it's a unique message because the message starts with God. Um, a lot of people say they wonder if there is a God. I had a friend of mine ask me the other day, and I'll leave you to wonder about it. He says, if there was no God, wouldn't there be no atheists? I, I don't know. If there was no God, would there be no atheists? I'm left to wonder about that, because it seems that the reason that there are people who disbelieve in God is just because there is one. And so we're left here to begin with God, and yet uniquely so. I would ask my audience tonight, because I look at a lot of people I don't know, and, and I, 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 I don't know what background you come from. I can probably say we all live in the same tri-state area here, and, and so maybe our thoughts and the, our way of life is, is very similar, but I don't know where you've come from and, and, and what background you've had, and, and all these things are unknown to me. But I would ask you tonight that if, if you could just for an hour, and this may be a lot to ask, Maybe be searching for a solution because everyone's a skeptic, but there are some skeptics who don't want a solution and there are some who would say, let me hear what you have to say. 
we would all agree, honestly, that when we look at the problems in this world, there are some places, if we look to some of the devastation in the Middle East, if we look to some of the, the, the groups that practice terror, if even sometimes we look at our own country and the division right now, we can look at people and say they want no solution. We know that. They enjoy the fight more than they enjoy the solution. And I would ask you tonight, before God, that you would honestly say that you listen tonight looking for a solution. And you'd say, why would I ever do that? Because sometimes we all admit there's, solution, there's a solution, but maybe sometimes we just don't realize that there's a problem. That there is a problem with this world is undeniable. If you've only been here 10 years or 15, that there is an issue, that there is a problem, no matter where you go, north of the equator, south of the equator, no matter where you travel in this world, we're left with this imprinted upon us. That there is an issue, there is a problem with this world. And I would venture to say that as, as long as you think the problem is out there, you're never going to seek a solution until you realize the problem is right in here. And so I address you tonight based on these words, and I would like to speak about them tonight. And I would like to divide it up this way. I would like to look at what God did. And then I would like to look at what Christ did. And finally, I'd like to look at what we do. So if you looked at my message tonight, what God has done, what Christ has done, and finally what we have done. When I read this verse here, it tells me this, God made, God made, and, and however you want to look at this world, uh, God made from uh, the snow-capped Rocky Mountains, God made, uh, to the, the endless plains of the Midwest, God made. Uh, to the garden state, God made. We're still looking for the gardens, but to the garden state, God made. You'd say he, he made it all. God made. And, and we look out at the one who, who placed each star in the sky and, and hung the world on nothing, uh, who, has, who has fashioned every mountaintop and who knows the terrain of every ocean bottom. And we say God has made. And when, when we read in our Bibles, it's only a, just a couple of chapters there that tell us God made, and, and just, a, just a few chapters there of, of 1,189 chapters in your Bible, there's only like one chapter given to the fact that God created. And you'd say it's, it's astounding that he created. And yet after that, we're left with 1,188 or 87 chapters to tell us the rest of the story. It is Charles Dickens, uh, the, the great author of uh, Oliver Twist. Tale of Two Cities. He said this. The difference between constructing something and creating something is that it's only after you have constructed something that you can love it. But something that is created can be loved before it ever existed. Before you were ever here, you were loved. Before, before the... The poles had been fashioned on this globe. You were loved. It's different from being constructed. We make things. God created. We just, we, we, we take what is already here and we construct. And yet we read here that God made. That God made. And you, 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 you look at this and you'd say it's so unique of all that God made. And he made it and he said it's good. If you read through Genesis 1, you read God made this and he said it's good. And he made this, and he said it's good from the, from the ocean life, 
to the to terrestrial beings. He said, it's good, it's good, it's good. And yet in the world we live in, we would say this, things have fallen apart. Things have gone awry. And this is the unique part about this gospel message is that not only did God love before he created, but after we wrecked the creation, the next 1,187 chapters of the Bible tell us this, God loved the same people who wrecked it. God loved. The fact that God loved, and we, we look at this, we take a fact that God made, and it, it reminds us of our own lives. I'm looking at an audience tonight, and where will we be 10 years from now? Where will we be 15 years from now? I can say that to some audience members, and I don't have to say it with any doubt, Lord willing. And yet I look to others and I say, who knows? Who really knows? Who really knows whether you'll make a million? Whether you'll make good on the promises you made when you were 18 or 19? Who really knows whether you'll make a name for yourself? Who really knows whether you'll, you'll make a future for a family one day? All that. All that is no value if you don't realize what God made. God made his son sin for you. The verse says, God made him sin for me. And of all that I could look at, of all the, of all the, 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 the evils in this world, of all the things that are, are wrecked and ruined, I realize this, that, that God looked and treated his son as though he were the evil of this world. And I would be more specific tonight. God treated his son as though he had lived my life. God treated his son at Calvary as though his son had lived my life. And God made him sin. That's what God made. God made him sin. We preach a message of forgiveness tonight. And I make no, no excuses if you say, this is harsh, this is heavy. We preach a message of forgiveness tonight. But, but, but I'm reminding you, forgiveness is one thing. I was just reminded recently of, of two years ago. Was it Dylan Hood who shot up a church down in South Carolina? And it was his, his victims. It was, it was their children who forgave him. They forgave him. He, he killed. He killed people in that church. And it was daughters and it was sons of those who were killed who forgave the shooter. It was a year ago. It was a year ago that Mr. Simpson was killed and it was put on Facebook Live. And it, we read there that the daughter of the man who was killed forgave the shooter. Forgave him. You say, those are amazing stories of forgiveness. It doesn't take away from the consequence. Both those men are in jail today. Forgiveness is one thing. To forgive a man and to say, I'll make amends with him. I will, not, I, I will not have anger and I will not have thoughts of vindication towards him. That is one thing. But both Mr. Dylan Hood and, and the man who took the life, Mr. Simpson, they're, they're both in prison today. They are suffering judgment for what they did. God says he made his son the very judgment that you deserved. He made him sin. God made him sin for me. For me. You say, if, if God just echoed the words from heaven, forgiven, I'd say, on what basis? Uh, wh how can I be sure? Is it nothing more than a, than a card and a bunch of flowers that were sent when a wrong or an ill was done? 
forgiven on what basis? On this basis, that God made his son sin. He treated his son as though his son had lived the life of evil, the life that is ungodly that I'm living. He treated his son as though he had lived that life. And God made, and you say, why? Why in the world? Why would God take the one person he loved and make him the evil he so hated? Because God loved the world. And love is meaningless unless it displays itself. And so God loved and God gave. We could be forgiven. God made him who knew no sin. What did Christ do? We read what God did. What did God do? God made his son sin. What did Christ do? We, we, we look here and such a significant statement. Who knew no sin. There are other writers in the Bible who say he did no sin. There are, there are other writers in the Bible who yet go farther and say in him was no sin. You say the, the sinless person. You know, men and women differ. Uh, no, actually, men and women really don't differ on what is evil. If I, if, I, if I shouted out an evil tonight and I said, who thinks it's evil? And I asked you to raise your hands. I, I, we would be in agreement. We would be in somewhat agreement if I said, you know, if, 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 it was, if it was robbing the innocent, robbing widows, we'd all put our hands up. If it was taking the life of the innocent, ah, we'd all put our hands up. And then maybe I would get into some fuzzy parts where maybe you'd say, well, I don't, you know, when it gets close to home, we're a little less reluctant. You know, we all agree on what is evil. You know what we don't agree on? Which evils are excusable? Which evils can are excusable? Which ones really... Don't, 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 don't have as much of a bearing on my life. And yet Christ did not die because of the amount of sin. Christ died because of the fact of sin, the mere fact of it. The one fact that is so, it so, it so speaks to each one of us that because there was sin, God made his son sin at Calvary. And you'd say, what's the greatest sin? What's, what's the greatest one? That's like one of those. Riddles. I know what the greatest commandment is. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. If the gospel is love your neighbor as yourself, we're all doomed to hell. If that's the gospel message tonight. If I got up here and told you I have good news. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. No one's going to heaven. Not a single person. What is the gospel? That we had a neighbor that loved us and came to this world and became our sin at Calvary. That we had a neighbor. And you'd say often God is often portrayed as some distant landlord, some absentee landlord, just looking one day to show up and not only to collect rent, but to take away your deposit for all the things you've wrecked in the apartment. No, no, no. The Bible says we had, we had one who didn't have our problem, who came right to where we were. What did Christ do? What did Christ do? It says he knew no sin. He, 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 he never said anything wrong. He never took a misstep. There was a man who hung on the cross who said, this man's done nothing wrong. There was a time where he stood up in front of a, a great multitude of people and said, tell me of something that I have done wrong. And people were silent. 
people were absolutely silent. And you'd say, here was the one who didn't have our problem, had no sins. Imagine that. Just imagine, imagine meeting someone who had never wronged God. You'd say more than that. Imagine meeting someone who loved God with all his mind, his heart, his soul, his strength, and loved his neighbor the same way he loved himself. Imagine meeting a person like that. You will one day. I urge you tonight, be reconciled to God and meet him as your savior and not as your judge because of all that Christ did. It's what he did not do. There was no sin in him. He did no sin. He knew no sin. And so he became the only person to ever walk on this globe, to ever walk these streets who could die for sin, who could die for it. If someone has your problem, they cannot take care of your problem. And here's the man. He doesn't bear my problem, doesn't have it. And all that Christ did, you'd say, is the problem that significant? Is the problem that big? Because uh, Dave, uh, you know, I, I, I think there are some things that are overdone in this world. And there are, there are some issues that are just minor. And, and, and really, at the end of the day, how much wrong have I done? It was the, the famous prolific author, G.K. Chesterton, who once said, and he wrote for the London Times. Actually, they just call it the Times because it's the most popular newspaper on earth. They had a question. They said, what's wrong with the world? And you were allowed 200 words to respond to the essay. And he responded to the essay. And he said, dear editorial staff, as to your question, what is wrong with the earth? I submit for your consideration this answer. I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. Because for most of us, as we sit in our, as we sit in our couches at the end of the day, and, and as we turn on the news, as you open up a paper, a, a, as you look at just what's gone on today in the world, the evil seems to be so far away. And yet I recognize that what is out there on the macro, it was in this before it was ever out there. The problem is significant. The problem is significant enough that God sent his son into the world and God made his son sin. The one who knew no sin was the one who was able to die for sin. And you'd say, what are we left to do? God, we read what God did. God made his son sin. It's, a, it's an irrefutable statement of the Bible that God took his son and made him sin. I could repeat it over and over again. God made his son, God treated his son the same way he would have treated and judged any ungodly person in this tent tonight. And yet he did no sin. He was the holy, harmless, spotless son of God. What do we do? That's where everyone falls out. Maybe everyone has agreed with me thus far. And then you look... At this last fact, it says that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That we might be made the righteousness. What do we do? What do we do to gain this? You know, what is it? Mark Twain, he said, truth is stranger than fiction because fiction has to, it has to deal with possibilities. Truth, much stranger than fiction because fiction as a writer is writing, he just, he has possibilities and avenues to go down. When I read this verse, 
It tells me this, fiction is me deserving heaven. If we were an amen crowd, I'd expect one there. Truth tells me I cannot earn heaven. I cannot deserve it. Fiction tells me to work harder. Fiction tells me to go out and to do something, to merit that place, to merit forgiveness, to earn respect from the God of heaven. Fiction tells me that. Truth tells me not to do. tells me it's done. Truth tells me God did something. He made his son sin for me who knew no sin, that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. Who's the him? In Christ. And the Bible tells me God treated his son as though he had lived my life. And if I were to accept that as truth, if I were to believe that, that he took my place at Calvary, God would then treat me as though I had lived the life his son lived. I am made the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, in Christ, not in a church, not in a baptism, not in any other place, in a person. In Christ, a what cannot save, only a who can save. And so we're left with this. Why trust Jesus Christ? Why not trust, uh, why not trust uh, any other document? Why not trust some, some statement of faith? Why not trust a catechism? Why not trust a church? Why not trust other men who claim to be holy on earth? Because this is the only man who knows the way out of a grave. This is the only man who was made sin for me, who died at Calvary. Three days later, he rose again. And anything that would try to compete is smashed at that point because no one else has come back from the dead. And God says, he that has the son has life. He that doesn't have the son doesn't have life. God says, in case you're wondering about judgment, when it will come, it says that judgment's already been passed on those who do not believe. And yet all the judgment that this Bible could muster and talk about, it falls on the person of Jesus Christ at Calvary when God made him who knew no sin, sin for me, that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. You stand tonight to be forgiven by the God of heaven because of, because of a person who took your place at Calvary. I ask you just to, for a moment tonight, regardless of how you were raised, regardless of anything else, to look at this as the greatest of all solutions. Uh, no matter how skeptical you are about what is being said, to realize that what is being spoken upon is something that God has done and has nothing to do with what I have done. What all that I have done only contributed to what took place at Calvary when God made his son sin for me. That I would go free. And I could be forgiven. You could be forgiven tonight. You could be guaranteed heaven, eternal life, peace with God, because of what? Because there was a man who knew no sin, who was made sin. God treated him as though he had lived your life. And he did so at Calvary. If you want to know, if you want to know what your life deserved, you look to Calvary. If you want to know the way God looks at people who are saved, you look at the life of Jesus Christ. And God says, in Christ, people are forgiven. People 
are brought home to heaven. People are saved. We pray tonight that through the preaching of the gospel, you might recognize this truth. It is not fiction. It is not fable. And it is for the whosoever that is for you. Good evening. I'd like to read in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 45. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 45. And while it is verse 22 that we want to look at, for the sake of context, let's break in at verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image. And pray unto a God that cannot save. And there are still millions of people bowing before images and praying to a God that cannot save. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time. Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. I think that the word saved is one of the greatest words in the English language. It's one of those words that you would have to jump through a lot of uh, verbal hoops to use in a negative way. If your husband or wife were in surgery and when the doctor came out from the operating room, he were to use just that word, you could get the details later on, but just the word saved, we saved him, we saved her, would be enough to calm your heart. If your son or daughter were involved in a hijacking situation and you heard that they were saved, that would be sufficient for you to know that all was well. Now God takes that word and he lifts it to its highest possible meaning. And he talks about what God wants for you, that he wants you to be safe, to be saved, to be in heaven with him. And so he says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Now, would you notice, please, that this verse is presenting to us the scope of God's salvation, all the ends of the earth. Please do not exclude yourself because God doesn't exclude you. He's including you in this. No matter who you are, no matter what your religion is, no matter what you don't believe or do believe, God is making a bona fide offer of salvation to you. Look unto me and become saved all the ends of the earth. And then he gives us two reasons why it is possible for anyone or everyone to become saved. He says, I am God and there is none else. So because he is God, there are no impossible cases to a God of infinite power and incomparable grace. So even though some may be perhaps isolated, hard to reach, far from the gospel, 
I think about a man in the New Testament. He was an African treasurer. He had come from Ethiopia. He was traveling from Jerusalem back to his job in the palace in Ethiopia. He was in the middle of a desert. And God brought a gospel preacher from where he was seeing a mighty work done and brings him all the way out into the desert to the spot where the chariot is going to be coming by. And the man is coming by and he's got a scroll of the book of Isaiah and he's reading the Bible and he's wondering who this is. This person who suffered for others. This person who was wounded for the sins of other people. Who is this? And with these questions in his mind, all of a sudden, here's a man as the chariot gets near. There's a man standing there in the middle of nowhere. God brought him there. No impossible cases with God. I think there are some here that would have read the... Um, biography of the Irish preacher John Knox McEwen. One night after a meeting, he was staying in the home of uh, some friends, and when he was getting ready for bed, he just thought he would step out onto the balcony of the bedroom where he was. So he opened the doors and he stepped out onto a small porch, looked out into the night, and for some reason which he said later, I can't tell you other than that just it was pressed on my mind that I should say this. He said these words, the full verse. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I think he said it again with nobody there out into the air. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Stepped back in, closed the doors, and went to bed. His biographer records that in the morning there was a knock at the door. And when the host opened the door, the man said to him, asked him, is there, is there a minister of the gospel staying here? Yes, he said there is. Would it be possible to speak with him? Certainly, come in. Calls Mr. McEwen down, brings him into the side room where the man is waiting for him, and he said, are you a minister of the gospel? He said, yes, I am. Did you happen last night, did you happen to say something about Christ coming into the world to save sinners? Yes? I was standing by the lake, ready to throw myself in to end my miserable existence. I thought everything was hopeless. And he said, through the night sky, I heard these words, Christ came to save sinners. And I stopped. And I heard it again. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And I thought, maybe there's hope for me. Maybe there's hope for me. So he said, instead of killing myself, I thought in the morning, I will go see in that house. I will see whether the man in there knows anything more about this. And Mr. McEwen was able to tell him about the Lord Jesus. Now, I would like to challenge you. Please tell me, who can time a thing like that? Who can plot and plan a thing like that? Who can bring a gospel preacher to the house, have him step out on the porch just at the moment when the man is standing by the water, thinking life is empty, I should throw myself in? Who can do that? Preachers should never tell stories on top of stories. I want to break that rule just right now because just, just across the river, New York City, there was a woman who was heading to the East River to throw herself in. Disconsolate. I read her story, disconsolate, depressed, walking down the street, one of the streets in New York. There were Christians handing out gospel papers. She didn't even realize she had taken the gospel paper. 
She just took it. She got to the river, and then she realized there was something in her hand. And she looked at it. And there was something about the title, about Christ, and about salvation. She went back looking for the people, and they weren't there. She looked up somebody who was saved and asked about how to be saved and kept asking and kept reading the Bible. And I read her testimony telling how she was saved. You know what she said? This is why I've never forgotten it. One thin paper stood between me and eternal hell. One thin piece of paper. I don't even know the man who gave it to me. But if that paper had not been in my hand, I was going to end my life. Who can do a thing like that? You see, we're talking about a God who is of infinite power. Think of how insulated Roman soldiers were in the palace of the Emperor Nero. And yet God can so arrange things that the greatest gospel preacher of the day, the Apostle Paul, will end up in prison and will be able to talk to and preach to these soldiers who could never have been reached, who never would have gotten an invitation to a gospel tent, who never would have heard the gospel otherwise. But I am God. He's able to do that. Doesn't matter how insignificant a person is. You can't get much lower on the social ladder than a dying malefactor hanging on a cross on the edge of eternity. But of all the days to be crucified, he's, he's crucified the very day that the Son of God is right beside him. And when he turns to Jesus, he finds mercy, forgiveness, and salvation. Listen, my dear friend, you could be saved tonight because it's God who does the saving. And I know that you could be saved tonight because of this second reason. He says, not only because I am God, but he says, there is none else. You see, if there were a plurality of gods, as so many people imagine, then I could not assure you tonight that the God I'm reading about really has an interest in you. Wherever there were a plurality of gods, they had varied interests. There were some who loved the, the monastic contemplative type. There are others who liked the warrior. There are others who were drawn to people of beauty, and, and that was their God. And so if there were many gods, I would never be able to tell you, no matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done, you can be saved. But because he is God, and there is none else, that God is saying to you, look to me and become saved all the ends of the earth. Now, there are people who have a lot of objections sometimes. Some people say, well, I, I, I just, God just won't save me. God just won't save me. I've tried this many, many times, and, and he just won't save me. Please understand, if there is a problem or a delay, the fault is always on our side. When the Lord Jesus wants us to know what God is like, he pictures the eagerness, the eagerness with which God forgives and saves sinners by telling us about the prodigal's father running down the road to welcome his boy home, to forgive him, to, to drown the boy's protestations out with his hugs and kisses, and to welcome him back. Because he's telling us that what God loves to do is to save people. What God would love to do tonight is to wash your sins away. What God would love to do is to give you eternal life. He would love, as we've been hearing, to make you right with himself or to reconcile you. Some people think that they cannot be saved until they make some changes in their life. And they imagine, well, I better give up this. I better stop doing this. I better, I better change this. And Now, when the Lord Jesus wants us to understand how much you qualify for salvation right now, he takes us to the side of the Jericho Road, and he points us to a man who has been beaten He's almost dead, 
He has been robbed of everything. He is penniless. He is dying. If anything is going to help him, he is not going to be able to lift a little finger to aid in this. His Savior is going to have to come all the way to where he is. And his Savior is going to have to do all the saving. And you remember that. It is the Savior's most famous parable. What we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan comes right to where he was. The priest goes by on the other side. The Levite, the religious worker, goes by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, sees him, has compassion, goes to him, takes care of his wounds, puts him on his own animal and, and, and transports him to an inn, to a hotel, sits beside him. Did he not have, did he not have a day, day planner? Did he not have a schedule? Was he not on business? But you see, the inconvenience doesn't even enter into this. Because the Lord Jesus is telling us that just as you are, just as you are tonight, a guilty sinner, the Lord Jesus will come to you and save you if you will turn to him. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. I have met some people who think that salvation will not suit them, that they're, they're not spiritual enough. That's a wonderful 21st century word, isn't it, the way it's used today, that they're not spiritual enough. Let me tell you, salvation is a perfect fit for you. It's a perfect fit for you. It has been tailor-made by your maker to meet your deepest needs for this world and the world to come. And when the Lord Jesus wants to picture that, he pictures for us the marriage of a prince and the wedding festival, what we call the reception. And people coming into the wedding reception and receiving a garment from the king himself. And, and, and it fit. See, no matter who came, the garment fit. And so if you're the active type, athletic type, this will fit you. It fit Pete Maravich, didn't it? Pistol Pete. The gun was held right to his head. He said, go ahead and pull the trigger and end my miserable life. He described hitting rock bottom. He tried yoga. He tried transcendental meditation. He tried Eastern religions. He said life was empty. This is a millionaire. This is one of the most successful basketball players coming through college and into the NBA. He did things with a basketball that nobody had ever done to that time. And he talked about the emptiness of his life until he found Jesus Christ. Maybe you're not athletic. Maybe you're the opposite kind. Maybe you just, maybe you love to read. You love to do deep thinking. There's a man named C.S. Lewis who was a deep thinker. God first convinced him that he existed. And you'll remember his words when he said, you must picture me sitting in my, my office at Maudlin College. The most reluctant, as he called it, convert. He wasn't saved then, but he had just come to believe that there was a God. And he said, feeling the the approach of him who I so fervently did not want to meet. But he had been convinced, see, he had been convinced that there had to be a God. And that Oxford Don was bowing to the truth of God. And then one day on a bus, as he was riding, I think it was to the zoo, he simply said this way, when I got onto the bus, I was not a believer. When I got off that bus, I was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have a moment in your life when you were saved? Do you have a moment in your life when you looked away from yourself, your religion, your prayers, your tears, your good works, and you looked to God for salvation through his son? Do you have a moment like that? Because that's what this is talking about. 
You see, this unearned salvation, that's why it says, become saved, be ye saved. Because it indicates just what Mr. Zudema has been telling us. You noticed, didn't you, that God was the active agent in the verses we read in 2 Corinthians. That God made him to become sin for us. God placed my sins on the Lord Jesus. He didn't make the Lord Jesus commit sin. He made the Lord Jesus the bearer of my sin. And then God is the one who makes the person who is saved, makes him the righteousness of God. So just as God was the one, the active agent there, notice, look to me and become saved because I am God. He prefaces it by saying there is no other savior beside me. He's ready tonight to save you. You see, the redemption, the payment, the suffering, that's something that Christ accomplished. He paid it all at Calvary. All of my sins, he dealt with them on the cross. My monumental debt against God, the Lord Jesus took that debt and paid it in drops of precious blood. Now, before you and I begin to think there's something that we can do that can be added to what Jesus did, please listen to these descriptions of Calvary, and I hope that you will catch something of the violence and extremity that Jesus went through on your behalf. The Bible speaks about the death of the Son of God. It talks about the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing from all sin. It speaks about the wounds of the Lamb of God. It talks about the, the sufferings of Christ who suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Can you imagine my thinking that I could add to that my good life, my prayers, or, or that I could give God my heart and somehow that would go alongside of the epic work of the Lord Jesus on the cross? No, 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 my friend. What saves is what Christ did at Calvary. In fact, just thinking of these words again, I'm reminded that the British scientist, one of the greatest scientists that Britain ever produced, Lord Kelvin, said the greatest discovery I ever made was that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Have you made that discovery yet? That Christ came for sinners because the work that saves, the redemption, the payment, the suffering... That was all accomplished by Christ. Now the rescue, the rescue of a sinner from his sins and from going to hell, that's something that God accomplishes. That's why the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Your church can't save you. Your tears can't save you. Your prayers can't save you. Your money can't save you. God can save you. And he says, look to me and become saved for I am God and there is none else. That's why you will find in the Old Testament that the psalmist said, Looking up this way, he said, Thou, God, has delivered my soul from the lowest hell. That's why King Hezekiah added many years later, God has delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. He has cast all my sins behind his back. It is God who saves. And it is God who is ready to save you tonight all because of what Jesus did. Look unto me, he says, and become saved all the ends of the earth. So that's taking you in, isn't it? As long as you're alive in this world, the scope of this invitation embraces you. Because you see, it's the Holy Spirit of God who does the regenerating, who gives a person new life. And if you trusted Christ tonight, the blood of Christ would cleanse you from your sins. The power of God would deliver you from going to hell. The Holy Spirit of God would impart eternal life to you, and you would be saved. And all of that is offered in what I would call unequaled simplicity. Look unto me. Look unto me. 
When I was a little boy listening to the gospel, I used to hear a number of preachers quote these words. I never sat down to memorize them. It's just they're in my brain because I heard so many people say it. How unlike the complex works of man, heavens, easy, artless, unencumbered plan. Here's God's unencumbered plan. You and I were helpless. We couldn't do a thing to save ourselves. The only one who could save us was at God's right hand, his beloved son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you've ever watched an NFL game and you see somebody in the end zone holding up a sign that says John 3, colon 1, 6, that's John 3, 16 in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How could it be simpler than God's saying, look to me, look to me, and become saved, all the ends of the earth. One of my children was just a five-year-old, six-year-old, and we were standing at McDonald's. We weren't even there to get a Happy Meal. We weren't, we weren't there to buy a meal. We were just in there to get something to drink. Did you know that you can buy the toy that goes with the Happy Meal without buying the Happy Meal? Did you know that? Now you do. Well, my son knew that. And he pointed to the sign because at that point there was a sign up to the side with what the toy was. And he said to me, Dad, can I, can I get one of those? Now, there were three people in line ahead of us when he asked me that. Dad, could I get one of those? And I said, sure, yeah, I'll get you one. There was no more begging. He didn't ask me two or three times. He didn't, he didn't say, you, you, you will get it. Why? Because when I told him I would get that for him, he just took me as telling him the truth. And from that point on, he was looking to me to get that toy. And sure enough, as you can imagine, when those two or three people moved aside and it was my turn, and we ordered our, our Diet Coke for me, Coke for him, and also I said I would like to buy that toy right there. He... He didn't pull out some money and say, Dad, can I help you buy this? He was looking to me to get it for him. As a teenage boy in the city of Philadelphia, just about 14 blocks south of City Hall, in the back bedroom of an old South Philadelphia row house, on a July night in 1966, on my knees by my bedside, I told God I was going to hell and I didn't want to go there. Would you please show me how to be saved? Do you know what I found out from the Bible that night? That salvation wasn't a joint effort between Jesus and me. That he did his part, fast though it was, and now I just had my little part to add to that. That at Calvary, Jesus died for me. And God was saying if I would trust him, I would have salvation. If I would trust him, he would give me everlasting life. I did what God said. I trusted Jesus. God did what he said. He gave me everlasting life. He's offering to give you salvation tonight. And you will see this, this unrivaled singularity that God insists on. I am God and there is none else. God is willing to save you tonight because he's a God of boundless grace. Doesn't matter what you've done. He doesn't ask questions. What he does offer is that if you turn to him and trust his son, he will never call your sins up to his mind again.
You and I can't do that. If I said to you, don't think about elephants right now, the thing that would be in your mind is an elephant because I just said the word. And if I said, stop thinking about elephants, you'd be in great difficulty. You try to fill in the emptiness with some other thought, trying not to think about something. But God can do that. And God says, if a person trusts the Lord Jesus, I will never call that person's sins to mind because he is a God of boundless grace. He's a God of limitless power. Not only is he willing to save you, but he is able to save you. There's no case too difficult for his mighty gospel. And he is the God of changeless fidelity. He will save you. He can be trusted unquestionably, eternally, completely, because he is God. And there is none else. So it's hard to think on a day like today. It's hard to think of a January day with a snowstorm. But it was the 6th of January. 1850, and a young teenage boy is trying to make his way to the church he usually attends, and he can't get there because of the storm, and he sees a building nearby, and he ducks into that church building, and because of the storm, the minister couldn't get there, so he sat there in the meeting, and he said, he noticed finally somebody got up. He was just a, a workman from the village. And he tried to preach and he read the verse I've read to you. Maybe he did a better job than I did, but he was running out of material. And he got to the point where when he was done, he said, um, look to me, I'm hanging on a cross. Look, look to me, I'm rising from the tomb. Look to me, I'm ascending to heaven. Look to me, I'm, I'm seated at God's right hand. And then Charles said the man sort of ran out of material. And he looked down at the audience and he said, he looked right at me. And he said, young man, you look miserable. <laughs> and uh, in his own inimitable way, Charles Spurgeon said, well, it was true. I was miserable, but I wasn't used to people making comments about my physical appearance from the platform. Young man, he said, you look miserable and you will be miserable until you obey my text. Look, look, you have nothing to do, but look. And sitting in that meeting that day, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, oh, I looked. I looked till I could have looked my eyes away and I realized that Jesus died for me and I was saved. Will you look to him tonight? Will you look to him tonight? Will you keep looking to yourself? Will you keep looking to the world around you? Will you keep looking to your church? Will you keep looking to your prayers or your, your good works? Or will you tonight turn away from all of those futile failing things and look to Christ for salvation? Because God says, look to me. And become saved, all the ends of the earth, because I am God and there is none else.